0: it got to the point where I would go places or we would have a dinner with someone we'd get, I'd get in the car and be like was I okay was I okay did I do okay and I'd usually get yelled at to the point where I didn't want to go out I, I pretty sure I became sort of borderline agoraphobic like I was terrified I mean literally crawling out of my skin lovers and friends is friends I'ma take you on a trip
1: baby I don't pretend I say lovers and friends uh. I'm gonna hold you down, down
2: to the end, I At this point, you've probably heard of gaslighting or you heard of something that sounds exactly like this. I describe this person as being someone who was very charismatic, incredibly charming. They were very charming. They could be nice, but then it would switch with the snap.
0: He throws stuff in my face to distract me and then everything that he did wrong is out the window. They would make me second guess my own judgment.
2: You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're saying. I never said that. They're crazy. You're crazy. I started to think, you know, maybe I am causing problems because every time I express this, he gets upset. It's always,
0: it always seems like I'm the one causing the problem. The hardest part was having friends telling me that I was being gaslit and I didn't see it.
2: Targets of gaslighting are manipulated into turning against their own memory, emotions, and possibly their own core identity and those in their core circle. Now, everybody who follows me probably knows by now that I am obsessed with reading and collecting information about dark psychology and mind manipulation because in my opinion, knowledge is your best, arguably your only defense against it. So I wanna share why this episode is so special to me and why I wish it came out in 2012. But first, I wanna share this with you. Hi lovers and friends, it's your girl Shambu Dram, and you, oh, let me tell you about yourself right now. You're an incredibly smart, fine as fuck, compassionate human who chose to listen to this episode of Lovers and Friends about gaslighting. Now, if you are exactly what I just described, you might have a very hard time learning and accepting dark psychology because you cannot imagine why anyone would do these things when they could just be honest and kind and decent instead. Yes, But you got to keep in mind, people who use mind manipulation usually A, are sadistic people who derive pleasure from others' pain, or they're the kind of person who gets a high from outsmarting other people. B, they're usually very insecure. They don't think they have what it takes to get what they want the honest way, or they were modeled very toxic behaviors growing up and think that this is the only way. C, And I think for the most cases of gaslighters, these people are takers and they become aware that the only way to get you to give way more than they would ever be willing to provide in return is to manipulate you into a false sense of reality. And once you accept the fact that unfortunately some people do have the stomach and capacity to act in this way, I think you can clearly identify if it has or if it is still happening to you. So I wanna tell my story. In 2015, I was fresh off a breakup from a four year partner that I'd once lived with. And I was driving in LA, the city where I arguably moved here just to get away from my toxic partner. And I was listening to some audiobook when the topic of gaslighting came up. Now, I don't remember the name of the audiobook, but I do remember that at first I was passively listening and then I was completely engaged. Then I was engrossed and then I was enraged. I am not exaggerating. I had to pull the car over because. I was screaming, screaming for pain, screaming out of stupidity, screaming out of naivety, just literally screaming. I mean, imagine you go into your partner's room and you look under the bed and you discover a book that is titled, How to Fuck Over, insert your name here, That is how it felt when I heard the steps that a gaslighter takes to manipulate their victim. So this is how this book would go. Step one, pick the victim and prey on whatever insecurity they are most vulnerable about. So for me at this time, I had just gone through this soul-rocking breakup with my best friend and my business partner. And then a couple months later, there was this guy who I clung to like a beacon of hope in a very dark time. Um, and I perceived as a result, this person was my soulmate. And then they started to cut ties with me as well. So my ex, aka the gaslighter, really caught me while I was falling and reeling and grieving from these two losses and caught wind of the fact that this was a deep insecurity of mine. Then they groomed that insecurity and used it against me. Step two, confuse your victim by denying their reality and enforcing your own instead. Wherever applicable, use the insecurity you're aware of against them to back up your lies. Because again, you already believe this terrible thing about yourself, like I am unlovable. And if they are able to hinge their accusations to that deep-seated belief, then they got you. Step three, to fucking somebody over via gaslighting. Collect co-signers. Use confirmation bias or confirmation fabrication to really back up your lies. This means saying things like, so-and-so told me that they think whatever their enforced reality is about you too. Or they might just make things up as you will hear about in the story of Melissa Rivers, who shares her experience with her gaslighter. And that's coming up next. Step three to becoming a shitbag gaslighter become very, very good at the switcheroo. So you use enforced reality as a defense mechanism whenever you're in the wrong, even if it has nothing to do with this scenario. So as a loose example, you might say, oh, hey, I got into the car and it was on empty. Next time on your way home, can you just grab gas? Or if you can't, let me know ahead of time so I can plan ahead to make sure I go get gas before I'm late for my commitments. And then the gaslighter might say to you, my God, You are so incredibly self-centered and selfish. Did you even stop to think why I left the car on E? Did you even ask what happened to me? This is exactly why no one can stand to stick by you. And step four, the one that unfortunately keeps things in a toxic loop, especially if you are the kind of person who is devoted to self-improvement, the gaslighter will be the one to console you worse than that. They're going to be the one who claims to understand you the best and the only person in the world who is willing to put up with you and your unique case of crazy, whatever they peg that to be. It is literally a mindfuck. And interestingly enough, when I've been talking about gaslighting over the past few years, I've heard just as many people, arguably just as many people say, oh shit. I've actually done that to people as people who have been able to identify, oh my God, like that has happened to me. So that to be said, I hope everybody is invested in this episode and they're all ears because we're going deep into gaslighting and we're also going to be doing this one of my favorite psychologists who really blew this topic wide open and as a result blew my mind wide open in ways that I genuinely think that you'll benefit from as well but before we get to that I want to talk with someone who's been through it and is still going through it, even though she left her gaslighter years ago. So I want you to meet Melissa Rivers, an entertainment journalist, New York Times bestselling author, an award-winning producer and correspondent, an equestrian, an Ivy League graduate, an accomplished public speaker, an animal advocate who was wounded so deeply by a gaslighter that she told People magazine she'd probably never be in another long-term relationship again. She's also the host of Melissa Rivers' group text podcast, where she shares her thoughts on whatever she and her friends are texting about. So I was a guest on Melissa's podcast a couple months ago, and we had... Such great chemistry, such a great time that I invited her to be on Lovers and Friends. I didn't know where the conversation was going to go. I did not expect it to go here, but I am so, so grateful that it did. And I think you will be too. The last time that we talked, we talked about flirting. We talked about seduction. We talked about putting yourself out there. We talked about motherhood. You gave me some incredible advice that no one has it together. And you told me an amazing story about your kid having like a rolling fetish. My kid now has a spinning fetish. So every time she spins, I think of you now. Oh,
0: yeah. Um, <laughs> just roll
2: and
1: roll
0: and roll. Like, where are you going? <laughs>
2: And when we were talking last time, you were sharing about your own love life um, or your opinion on the lack thereof. And then I saw something in People Magazine that I wanted to get your reflections on, because this is actually a couple of years ago that you had said this, that you have come to a place where you've gotten to peace with the fact that you're not going to have a great love story in your life moving forward.
0: Yeah. You know, I, I think at the time of that interview, I thought I had made peace, but apparently I was just doing what I play say playing mental hopscotch, which is if I say something enough times, maybe I can get there. You know what? It honestly goes in waves. There are times when I'm like, okay, this is it. I'm good. I'm so good. And then there's other times where you go, God, I wish I had someone to share this with.
2: Well, Melissa, you have a son and you've definitely been partnered in the past. Can you share with me a little bit about your intimate history? Maybe what you saw growing up or what you experienced as a teen and as an adult um, that led you to a place where you felt like, I don't even have the energy to try anymore.
0: I think there's a few, few things that I find. One is I always place blame on myself first when something's going wrong. What am I doing to create this? Which not isn't necessarily the healthiest place to start. That's, I think, number one. Number two, I'm way too forgiving and trusting. And that has burned me. I give fifth, sixth, and seventh chances, not just second chances to people. And I do that in, I would say, the majority of my relationships, not just romantic. I stay too long. And I think I've been burned by a couple of major relationships in my life that I'm in a place now where I run before there's even a reason to, Mm. you know, for example, I had a date, uh, two weeks ago and I literally, first of all, complete and total anxiety, wanted to cancel, came up with a bunch of excuses, even driving there. I'm like, I can still get out of this. Oh, car trouble. Oh, this, oh, that, Oh, you know, coming up with A million reasons. And literally like I had to force myself into the restaurant bar where we were meeting. At least I think I'm I'm making progress because I'm aware that I'm doing that. But I also know that I should not be wanting to cancel 48 hours in advance, 24 hours in advance, 12 hours in advance, two hours in advance. You know, it's it's put me in a place where I I have to sort of reflect upon why Mm -hmm. I really feel this way recently.
2: Well, it seems like you gave two really strong reflections just now that there's a fear of yourself, you know, the version of you that puts yourself in a position to get harmed because you stay for so long and you trust for so long. And then now flip side, there's an overreactivity to that. So in your reflections on like, why, why am I so terrified? Why am I so nervous? Why am I so nervous to the point that I gave up hope at one point? What comes to mind for you?
0: being hurt, being betrayed, also making sure I don't get into a relationship just to be in a relationship. Yes. Because I think that's a trap a lot of people fall into. I was going to say women, but men too. But the trap of overlooking things too early on. I mean, I think about my last significant relationship. There was stuff within the first six months that were such red flags. I remember thinking they were red flags, turning them on myself and then forgiving. And that would have saved me years of heartache. I think I'm still healing from the breakup. He really, are we allowed to curse? Hex, I I'm want so, I'm to say Hex, yeah. Fuck yeah. <laughs> okay. He just, he really fucked me up. He really fucked me up. And- in a very, when I was in a very vulnerable place in my life, which was right after my mom died. This relationship really fucked me up much more than my marriage did. So I
2: want to get nosy, but definitely feel free to be be like, back up um, if it's too much so. But what specifically fucked you up? Like what made that relationship so traumatic?
0: Um, A tremendous amount of gaslighting. I would love if you could define what gaslighting it means. Basically, convincing someone that their reality is not actually reality, I think, is the easiest definition, where for me, it was to the point where I thought I was going crazy. I literally thought I was going crazy being told I didn't say things or I did say things or things that didn't happen or did happen in hindsight realizing that the only way this person could feel good about themselves was by tearing me down. I remember one time we had had an argument and he said that, that there was, that I'd caused such a scene and did it, which I hadn't. we'd gotten into an argument and I walked away and, you know, it was in the restaurant we got in. I walked away and um, I was very upset it was on a new year's and I was very upset And I was crying and walking back to the room and security was like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. And then when he came to the room, he was like, they they told us we have to leave. And the next morning I apologized to the concierge or whoever it was, the person in charge of our our accommodations. And they said, what are you talking about? We never called anyone.
2: I've been in a gaslighting relationship before. And the thing that gaslighters do extremely well is they turn other people against you or they make you believe other people. So they'll say, everyone else thinks this about you. Everyone thinks that you're this. And then it creates a relationship where this is the only person who's seemingly willing to put up with you.
0: Oh, I'm the only, who else is gonna put, uh, you say, go look at yourself in the mirror. Who would want you? You're gonna end up old and alone. Everyone thinks you're crazy. Everyone's scared of you. Nobody wants to tell you anything. And doing disappearing acts and making me panic. And the, I mean, really bad, really, really, really bad stuff. And then a horrific breakup.
2: Well, around the time that you were going through a horrific morning period.
0: Yeah, I was in a bad morning period when, and I, I literally think back, I feel like I felt like I was preyed upon, but I know I wasn't. Because I don't think this person is a bad person. Person, you know, in, no in girl, general, I don't know I what I, I think they're really fucked up, but still good. I have to believe that I didn't waste almost four years of my life with someone who is intrinsically a bad person. Mm-hmm. I just think they have so many of their own demons that it's out of control. But I can't, I think if I allowed myself to believe this was just. A bad person. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I could go there. I think that's... Which again, is me being too forgiving. Right. Well, I mean, it's also,
2: I I was reading this book that talked about compassion and the difference between empathy and compassion. And empathy is like, oh, I feel for you. And compassion is, I understand you. And I'm making an attempt to see things from your perspective. And it was like the biggest uh, roadblock to compassion is dehumanization or infrahumanization, where I'm like, you're a monster or you're less human because you did this. And so what you're doing, you're writing the textbook on compassion. Right. I want to ask a question too, because you mentioned that you guys were friends for a long period of time before. Mm -hmm. Was there a sudden switch in personality, which often happens because now we're seeing somebody in a romantic state, which that pulls upon so many insecurities and so many fears, and it can bring out the worst in people. Um, Was there a really big difference or you're like, oh, I saw this before in you as a friend and it just amped up once we were romantic?
0: I think I saw it before as a friend and thought, oh, well, it's going to be different now. Because when we got together, everyone was like, finally, after all these years, you guys finally enough already. Let's let's get this show on the road. But a part of the gaslighting
2: sometimes is because that person can't believe they're with you. And so they implore these manipulative tactics to make sure that they stay with you. So I wonder if this is somebody who like held a torch for you for a long time and then finally got a chance with you and panicked.
0: I think his way of feeling like an equal was to tear me down. And he did. He did, it got to the point where I would go places or we would have a dinner with someone. We'd I'd get in the car and be like, was I OK? Was I OK? Did I do OK? And I would usually get yelled at to the point where I didn't want to go out. I, I pretty sure I became sort of borderline agoraphobic. Like I was terrified. I was terrified to, to go anywhere, do anything. How did I look? Um, did I look bad? Like, I, I mean, literally crawling out of my skin.
2: I'm so sorry this happened to you. It is vile. Well, I
0: think it's, by the way, I don't think it's, I don't think it's that uncommon. Oh, it's not
2: uncommon at all. Yeah. That's why I think hearing your experience is so powerful because I'm going through it in my own mind of own experiences. I know people who are listening right now are like, A, I've been in that or B, unfortunately, I'm currently in that.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's so hard to get out of because all of your insecurities have been so, not just tapped into, but manipulated to where you almost become paralyzed by them.
2: I'm wondering if you were familiar with the term gaslight while it was happening, or if it was something that you became a PhD professor on after you left.
0: I didn't realize it till I was getting ready to leave. And I'd never really heard, I'd heard the term gaslighting, but I never thought of it as something that was would happen in interpersonal relationships. I thought of it more on a, you know, news kind of political scale, you know, more of in a manipulative, larger sense than, you know, I always thought of it as more as like somebody's a compulsive, I always thought of it more as somebody's a compulsive liar or mean or manipulative. I didn't realize that there was an actual subcategory with a whole name. And when
2: you read it, how did you feel?
0: I think I tried to pretend that that wasn't the situation, that it was really sort of individual silos. And then all of a sudden I'm like, what a fucking asshole. He's totally gaslighting me. And a friend of mine pointed that out to me. And it's interesting because once I got out of it, Literally, I think about three days after I threw him out, my friend sat, sat me down and did kind of like a mini intervention to make sure I wouldn't go back. What did that look like? Just not confronting me in a mean way, but being extremely honest on how debilitating and dangerous this relationship was for me and pointing out a lot of things that I think I, I knew, but I didn't want to admit to because I covered everything. I covered everything you PR for him. Big time. Big time. And at that point I was so exhausted that I'm like, I can't do PR.
2: Cause I'm curious because you got into this relationship and all your friends were like, finally, when you got out, it sounds like your yeah. friend was like, finally.
0: Yeah. I think we, it was, it was, a huge disappointment to a lot of people. And I'm sure I was a huge disappointment to a lot of people in in his life, just like he was a huge disappointment to a lot of people in my life.
2: I want to talk about your friend, but specifically outside relationships, because often what happens in gaslighting relationships is it causes so much mistrust for ourselves and then also that person doesn't just gaslight you and say, everyone doesn't like you. They also try to turn you against other relationships. So I wonder if the fear that you had and that you're working through now of getting back out there also stems from a place of seeing how a romantic relationship can negatively impact so many of your other relationships.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I, I The first thing, or not the first thing, the second thing I think of, The second thing I think of when I'm going on a date with someone or meet someone was, how is this person going to fit into my circle? How is this person going to fit in with my friends? Is this going to be a situation that's complicated or a situation where someone's really going to be an outsider or make me uncomfortable with my friends? And that's become a much, much bigger piece of it for me. How did that relationship impact your other relationships? He liked my friends. He enjoyed being around my friends, but just, it was never, I can't even say it was never a match because there were plenty of times it was. I think my friends just saw the bigger picture and they went from really liking him to really disliking him.
2: Because of who he is or because of who he turned you into?
0: Because of her, who he turned me into. And they could see the manipulation and all that long before I could. Long before I could. they said, like, are you okay? You want I mean, I literally was like, I stopped hanging out. I stopped doing all that because I was so insecure. When we think of the legacy that your mom left and the legacy that you have,
2: we think of a, I call it like I see it person somebody who is so in touch with reality that they're going to say the things that everybody is thinking, but they're afraid to say, but you're so grounded. And then further to that, you had a therapist. And on top of that, you're a mom. So you're a professional therapist for somebody else. And so it feels like you'd be the last person this would happen to.
0: I I thought so too. I also pride myself on my strength and I'm embarrassed by how weak I allowed someone to make me become. I'm I'm embarrassed of of my own weakness in, in that particular relationship. And I think that's a really interesting takeaway. Everyone says to me, what's your regret? My regret wasn't getting into the relationship. My gr- regret was very much staying as long as I did.
2: Because you stayed so long that... You developed a fear of ever being in any kind of romantic relationship again.
0: Oh, and it still haunts me. It still haunts me. Like I said, this this guy that I was out on a date with, who was so lovely, <laughs> I literally <laughs> thought I was going to throw up for half of it. Because this is the thing.
2: We all enter into relationships with that. And furthermore, this ex was a friend. So we go into this altruistically thinking this is a lovely person. This is a good person. Is it that that experience made you second guess your own judgment now?
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely guess my own judgment. And I find the biggest piece that I am really having trouble with is why would anyone want to be with me? What? That's that's still to this that's day. Where I, still to this day. I mean, I literally cannot meet someone to save my life. And I am not an easy match.
2: I know that when I got out of that relationship that was gaslighting, one of the jokes that I would say is I've never felt so prepared to answer the question on job interviews. What are your shortcomings and weaknesses? I'd be like, how much time do you have? Um, But I got past that by saying yes to a lot of dates and being around people who were like, oh man, this person thinks I'm cool. This person thinks I'm hot. This person thinks I'm good enough. This person thinks I'm interesting enough. And when I knew that my husband is my life partner, I had this like really specific moment where I looked at him and I was like, you actually think I'm a good person. Like I don't have to audition for you or prove it every single day no matter what I do, even if it's imperfect, you always view it through the lens that like, I'm a good person. And I feel like that was my first time experiencing that. And then from that moment on, I just was able to only expect that out of other relationships. Um, So I'm just kind of curious because Melissa, you have so much love around you because a lot of times I work with people where they're looking for a healthy romantic relationship, but none of their other relationships are in order. They don't have good connections with their family members. They don't have friends. They lack self-love. They lack a greater appreciation for life overall. And they're hoping to find this one person who's going to shift all those currents around. So in reflection of that, do you feel like you're at a place where you're not as pressed for romantic love because you have so much other love around you? Or is it just a fear that you're unlovable all around?
0: I think it's the combo factor. I think I still have the voice telling me you're not good enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not successful enough. You're not young enough. You're not skinny enough. Whatever it is. But I also know that that's the voice in my head. Unfortunately, in the world we live in, a lot of those things do come into play. Especially with men over the age of, shall we say, 45. Um. Because most of them are looking for, you know, they're, they're trying to date younger or whatever. They don't really, they're getting out of their marriages with women who were quote unquote equals, who, who were equals. And they don't necessarily want that again. But so that's, that's also been an interesting component where one guy flat out was like, look, you work too much. You're, you're too still in your world, and your career. And he didn't mean it in a negative way. It just didn't work for him. The last thing
2: I want to ask you is if you met someone like yourself, because you give hot takes and you give honest reflections for a living. So you meet somebody who is still scarred from a relationship that was riddled with manipulation, with gaslighting, with emotional trauma. And that person says to you, I don't think I could do it again. And furthermore, I don't know if anybody would want to do it with me again. What would you say to that person?
0: I would say you can't live in fear. I would say that I'm appreciative of them being upfront about what their baggage is and making the other person aware. But you would want to make sure that person isn't owned by their baggage. Like I always say, baggage is fine as long as it fits in the overhead or under the seat in front of you. Don't give me any gate check shit. I think we can end it there. (laughs)
2: Yes. (laughs) Thank you so much. To get more of Melissa, you can follow her on Instagram at Melissa Rivers Official. Melissa has gone on to do some wonderful work in my life and plug me in with some amazing opportunities and people. Thank you for being giving and compassionate. Um, I'm really grateful for you and I adore your work. I think you'll adore her, adore. I think you'll adore her work too. Is that my New York accent? I don't know. So Lauren actually listened to her audiobook, Lies My Mother Told Me, Tall Tales from a Short Woman, and she was obsessed that it was hilarious and insightful and just really, really great. So take a listen to that. Um, after you are finished listening, of course, to Melissa Rivers Group Text Podcast, wherever you are listening to this podcast. Up next, I have the pleasure of not only bringing on someone from my own lovers and friends circle, but definitely an expert on the topic as well. And that is expert Dr. Barry Goldstein, who is a clinical psychologist, a public speaker, a production consultant, an executive coach, and even a published board game designer. I really do enjoy and adore his contribution to my life and to my work. And I think you're going to feel the same way too. He drops so many gems, including
1: this one the very basis of gaslighting is that you are going to do all of these things, the lies, the cheating, the denial, the separation, all these things that are just horrible. And then you're going to shift the responsibility of it. Everything is going to end with you blaming your victim.
2: We got more from Dr. Barry's pot of gold right after this. I'd like to get your initial reflections to that, Doctor Barry.
1: You were talking about compassion uh, with Melissa, and I think that you were being quite compassionate with her. But I think, as I was listening to it, I what I heard was the more the more insidious side of gaslighting, which is uh, the fact that it's inherently abusive, right? It is a power play. It's manipulation. Um, it's covert. Right, and that it's not in, it's not direct manipulation; it's all this indirect manipulation. But what I heard was the story of someone who felt victimized uh, and was trying to rationalize that victimization, which is part of the gaslighting. Right? If you think about the cycle of of an abusive relationship, where there's this uh, ongoing um, optimistic, maybe pseudo innocent hope that that person isn't the monster that you are fearful that they are. But just the bit of it that I heard makes me feel like that person was abusive to her. And
2: Does that desire for that person not to be a quote-unquote monster come from a need for self-preservation? Or are you still trying to protect the
1: abuser? It's three things. It's the need for self-preservation so that you don't feel like such a dummy for having bought their garbage, right? That's part of it. Uh, the second part of it is that you're trying to protect that person, right? That you're trying to say, well, they can't be so bad because I love them. How could I love them? And the third part of it is that they have manipulated you into rescuing them over and over. An abuser an always uh, manipulates the cycle so that they're uh, turned into a monster, but then they come back and then they seem like a shining wonderful person. And maybe they treat you exceptionally well, then they treat you horribly. So that cycle of, um, of the chain of that abuse, um, can, um, reinforce this notion that they're, they're not that bad. They just bought me that tennis bracelet. Then, you know, then they do 10 horrible things. And our wish, our desire, when it's someone that we love is that that person is worthy of our love. Right? How else will our love have gotten on them? We don't want to feel like we've loved the wrong person. That's responsible for an awful lot of suffering in human nature. This notion that we just want the person that we love to be the person that we love. But when there's deceit and manipulation, then this is, uh, this is super dangerous. And let's not forget, gaslighters don't pick a random victim. Abusers don't pick a random victim. The thing that they're the best at is picking a victim who's going to play the game of that victim story. They know who's perfect. You know, like, gaslighting doesn't happen to everybody. It happens to people who are identifiably compassionate and willing to give people a second chance and believe that you can improve someone by loving them, which, you know, that's debatable. Some of it has to do with they have to have some questioning of their... Self-worth, right? There's got to be some doubt. And uh, they just, they, they also tend to be pseudo innocent, you know, which is a, a a term Sheldon Kopp, famous psychologist, wrote about, which is this like, it's a naive innocence, like a belief in fairy tales. You know, that if this person loves me, then they must have goodness about them. And the person could be proving you wrong 10 ways from Wednesday, and you just won't believe it.
2: It was cool watching you listen to it, which I've never actually done before, because usually <laughs> we send it to people in advance. Yeah. Because then hearing your responses, like your visceral reactions to things, because I would think that most psychologists would be of the belief system that everybody's good, that there are no bad uh-huh. people, that everybody is just flawed to some extent, but there's no bad people. But you were like, no, isn't doing a bunch of bad shit definition of a bad person? Yeah, right.
1: I think he said like, I'm filled with, or she said, "I, I think he's filled with his demons. And I'm like, I think a person who's like filled to their eyeballs with demons is probably not a good person. Like, you know, I mean, we can debate for much longer than this scope about what makes someone bad, right? But I think it wouldn't be a bad definition to imagine that someone who acts intentionally to harm someone else and to diminish them is someone who's behaving badly. Right? Are they inherently bad? I don't know. I you know I don't. Is there a soul? I don't know. Like you can just keep. Yeah, that's a once you start opening that box, like you got to keep slicing that apart to find the answer. But I do know that a, that a person who gaslights knows what they're doing, and here's what it comes down to. Monogamy is tough, right? If anybody knows that, you are like the champion of that story, right? You you talk. I've heard you talk so many times about like, if you're going to be committed to someone in a monogamous way, that is uphill work. Mm-hmm. And it got to be a good payout for that, right? Of intimacy and love and connection and increased strength. You have to be a better person for being in that relationship or it is simply not worth it. At least, it's the very least, it's not worth it. But when you're in a relationship with someone who's gaslighting, they are taking you down every single time. Their control comes at your expense. That's never a positive thing. It's like, it was a pet peeve, someone who rides their bike with a Bluetooth speaker on it playing music (laughs) to the world. That's your pet peeve. You're going to cut this out, I'm sure, 100%. But, like, when you're walking, when you're, like, hanging out and someone comes by on a bike and they're blasting their music on a bike, here's my point. You are having, you're listening to your music at the expense of the world. I don't want to listen to 20 seconds of your terrible music. I know you guys all came out here to ride, but I came out here to party. dude. Why? What? Why? What? Why are you doing this? Because I can't stand to be alone with my thoughts for even one second. Maybe he's trying to bring joy to the world. No, he's not. Not in twenty-second segments. Here's what it implies: a selfishness of of pleasure in the world. And if you're if your pleasure comes at the expense of the others, so like you think of someone who's bullying or teasing. Or gaslighting. It's all in that same zone where like your personal power comes from making someone else weak. Yes. And gaslighting is always selfish. It's always servicing the selfish needs of the abuser at the expense of the other person. And that's horrible. It's—it Because that person leaves in debt to that relationship.
2: Why is it lovable though? Because to your point about what relationships should provide, and it's logical that— Monogamy is such a heavy commitment, such a heavy ask of somebody. It's like asking me to invest $100,000, but in return, I'm not getting anything of value. It's the you're, opposite. Your
1: value is, is being lost. But it happens. And for Melissa, right, her self-value is still damaged from this. I mean, she can't account her own incredibleness, right? Her own love and her own attraction and her own ability to love someone else. She just, it's, it's completely been devalued by this. So you become trapped where they prey on your weakness. They make you feel um, disconnected from your own sense of self and your own sense of reality. They make you question the, the reality of the world. And so... You love that person as a desperate grab. You're just, you're holding on for dear life. That person's charming but because the charm is the way that they, the surface charm is the way that they attract people to them. A gaslighter is looking for your vulnerability as yes. a way to prey on it. So that's a little bit different, right? That's like, it, to me, it's always like, I always use the metaphor of when you open up a new puzzle, there's always a few pieces that look stuck together. They can even look like they belong together, but they're not. Those are the worst pieces because if the picture don't match, it's not together. Even if those pieces are locked together, that's what these relationships are. They're not appealing. They are destabilizing and the person's holding on like they're falling off a ledge. And the, and the abuser is doing everything they can to, to pluck off one finger after another of the person. So whatever's left holds on that, that much tighter. And even Melissa is not, she's not vilifying this person because maybe they still have a connection or overlaps in their lives, but just listening to it casually, you're just like, Oh, this guy, this guy's up to no good. It's hard to find anything positive in someone who's dragged someone down so deeply and so completely.
2: I think we're conditioned, especially in this therapized culture that we're coming into, to always look for sources for compassion and to always look for ways to connect with people and to empathize with people rather than to dehumanize or infrahumanize Correct. them.
1: Yeah, right. Anybody, if anybody, any perpetrator, we want to understand. We know, for instance, that all abusers have been abused, right? How else— would you learn what abuse is, right? And so that's great. We can have great sympathy for that person, but we don't have to go to bed next to them at night. You know, but we're not trying to cure uh, gaslighters. Like, as far as I'm concerned, that's a losing battle. Like, like it, first of all, they don't come for help. They don't see themselves as broken. And uh, they're not interested in change. And so they're very poor candidates for change. And so these perpetrators of abuse... Prey on human nature, they don't really prey on you because they, it doesn't matter, right? Whoever would be an appropriate victim would be a great target for them because they're out for themselves. Mm. It's a fully selfish thing, you're just filling a role, it's really not personal, right? That's the whole point of it, right? The disparaging comments, the cutting you down, you know, to making you feel like you're crazy, all of these things. It's like next, like if you, if you can somehow extricate yourself from that bullying, um, they'll find another victim right after that. And you'll be bewildered how fast that'll happen because they need it to feel like alive, you know, where you may need it to try to improve yourself and be a loving person and be compassionate. Like you've got all these high value human qualities operating there at a very base level for them. It's not existence or messing with your shit so that you're crazy and they seem superior. And uh, I've often heard, uh, as Melissa said, that these are sometimes the person will have groomed the relationship even before it's romantic, mm-hmm. right? Because these aren't just romantic relationships. They're typically romantic relationships. Well, what do you win when you do all this? What do you win? Uh, I mean, you win nothing. I think that the ultimately you don't win anything, because it's if you are at all self-aware, I'm trying well, to think. Well,
2: there's got to be something. I mean, well, the, enough people. The win is control. The win is control.
1: And you've captured that person. You've put them in this emotional cage that you were the only one who has the lock for. And they they closed the door on themselves, which makes them feel so stupid, right? And they they feel so weak. And you've got the key. That must feel good, I guess. I mean, I wouldn't want it. You wouldn't want it. Because we're in relationships that are reciprocal and positive yes. and and where the power is shared. And we feel stronger and more loved because we trust that person chooses to be with us. So I imagine in the end, a perpetrator of gaslighting must feel pretty weak to have to do this to keep the person captive and in their control.
2: How do you get out of gaslighting?
1: Yeah. How do you escape the perfect storm? Perfect storm. Right. That's a great way of putting it. Right. That's perfect storm between your vulnerabilities and their desire to take control using your vulnerabilities. So the first thing you have to try to do is to take some distance from the relationship. A lot of times the perpetrator will monopolize the time of the individual and cut them off from those other people that they love. And then that, that dovetails with the next thing which is you need to find your trusted allies and maybe that has to be a new person you may have cut yourself off from the people that you love so everybody's got that best friend that's always honest with them that's the first person cut out of your life by the perpetrator of gaslighting find them and just tell the story and hear from their angle them say to you like this is nuts like this is really unhealthy You need to hear that because your perception's been so damaged and so beat up. Um, It's important for you to take good notes. Yes. Right? Yes. I know that's, I think if by any, by the way, if you need to take notes in your relationship, it's time to be worried. But, you know, the perpetrators of gaslighting are so good at blowing out your sense of fact that you've got to say like, no, no, no! This is the text. Like you gotta save that text, and then really, there's only one solution, and that's terminating the the relationship. There's no, I've, I can't think of in my twenty plus years of working with couples and with relationships, any way that these relationships heal. They have to end. The, I think the perpetrator might be able to get themselves out of it if they can find the brokenness that caused it, and I know that victims of Gaslighting can find peace and love at the end of it and recalibrate uh, their heart to be able to love again. Um, but I don't think they can do it together. And that's part of what keeps people wounded is they're just waiting. They're waiting for it. As opposed to, I think, what is a different solution, which is to like go out and carefully meet someone new. What's so pleasing about new you know, new, whatever new relationship, new love is that we, we get an opportunity to reinvent ourselves within the world of that relationship. Yes. It takes the right healing relationship. You know, I don't, I don't think it's just therapy that could cure you from being a victim of gaslighting. And I don't think it's just time, Mm -hmm. you know, time does not heal this wound. I think it really takes a corrective experience with a trusted partner really careful, controlled, um, managed intimacy where you you know, really f- have faith in that relationship. And if you come out the other side of it as a stronger person who's closer to being the person that you're meant to be, more in touch with your own truth and living a life that's more in sync with your values, you'll be happier and you'll live a satisfying life. Whether or not that means you end up in another relationship, uh, you know what I mean? Like that's second to you being your genuine self.
2: I just love me some, DB. Dr. Barry, thank you so much. Shout out to you for sharing your expertise, your insight, your wisdom, your perspective on bikers who use bluetooth speakers uh, all of it deeply resonated with me and i hope everybody who listening who listened just now learned something new gained something new and can do something positive with this information to learn more about dr Barry, you can visit him at realityshrink.net that's it for this episode of lovers and friends i am recording this podcast the day after my birthday i used to be really really deeply ashamed of my birthday just you know ageism this year is a little tougher for me for some strange reason. I felt really proud of my birthday for the past three years, which was radical for me. And then now I feel like, ooh, maybe I just kind of keep it on the low, low, but I shouldn't. I actually had a moment yesterday where I was bawling my eyes out, just in joy. I got to watch King Richard, which I didn't get to watch in its entirety. And I watched yesterday and my daughter allowed me to watch it and she was just so lovable and joyful and i was there with my husband and he made an amazing dinner and it was just like one of those moments where i was like yo i get it life i really really do and so yeah it was a, it was a beautiful day i have to really examine why i'm like reverting back to my old ways of dreading my birthday or feeling embarrassed about a birthday but maybe there's an episode where we can unpack that but for now i'm focusing the positive and i'm telling you guys maybe a little late but i am announcing that yes I am officially older now than the last time that we spoke. Wiser, mm, yeah, sure. I'm getting wiser every single day, but also with wisdom comes learning that you don't know everything. And that's a part of the joy too. Talk to you next week. Lovers and friends. friends. I'm gonna take you on a trip, baby. I don't pretend, I say. Lovers and friends.
1: Uh, I'm gonna hold you down, down to the end, I say. Lovers and friends. Uh, lovers and friends, yeah, I say.
2: Lovers and Friends Friends is executive produced by Shared Entertainment, Sham Boudram and Lauren Morrison. Also produced by Two West Entertainment and Workhouse Media. Our mixing engineers are Brendan Burns and Marcus Hamm. The Lovers and Friends theme song is produced by Sean Ross and performed by Jared Brady, who also does the scoring and sound design. Jasmine Henley-Brown is the executive producer at Sauce, and this podcast is powered by Sauce from Stitcher.